0: The following program is sponsored by Friends of Life Outreach International.
1: And I felt like God said to me, Say yes, and I'll bring the feelings. And so I said yes wow. to somebody that I barely knew, had been out, you know, on one date, and at 19, that was the way I understood God worked. And so I said yes. Yeah. So all our marriage problems I blame on God because <laughs> I think that's it's only like, fair really. I yeah. Did it was his I, idea. I was not looking for this. This is what God said to do.
0: Spend Wednesdays in the Word with Sheila Walsh and Kay Warren.
2: Hi, I'm Sheila Walsh. Thanks for joining me on Wednesdays in the Word. You know, I was, I've been reading through the book of Acts recently and I, I stopped at one of the verses that really is like a, like a life's passionate verse for me. Sometimes Paul will write something and I think that is exactly what I mean. And this is Acts 20, 24. Uh, Paul says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others, good news about the wonderful grace of God. You know, I grew up as a good Scottish Baptist. I thought that was just about evangelism. But sometimes we as the body of Christ need to be told the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Because sometimes we are the ones who who are hurting, who are struggling, who are hiding. And we've lost touch of the truth that as you are right now, God says come to me just the way you are and I love you and I'm thrilled today to be able to introduce um, you to a a woman I know you're going to know but she has a fantastic new book out it's called um, sacred privilege your life and ministry as a pastor's wife Kay Warren thank you so much for being with us Uh,
1: Sheila well that's my life first I did not know that. I'm sitting over here wanting to go, yippee, yeah, that's my life verse. Uh, I can't believe that you started with that.
2: I love that verse because I think, you know, we live in a world, and I mean, you live in California, and I lived there for a while, where there's just a certain, like, this makes you popular. And even within the church, it's like, you know, you've had this many hits on this or that. Right. But I think none of that matters a hill of beans compared to the good news about the wonderful grace of God.
1: Well, it, it does, and for me, the when that verse, I know that's not what we're talking about today, but when that verse became so real to me was when I had become an advocate for people living with HIV and AIDS, and I was, wow putting myself in a lot of risk not to become HIV positive, but just I was stepping outside of what was talked about at church. I was with people that the church wasn't very interested in. And when I stumbled across that verse where Paul says, my life is worth nothing to me, if only I can do what God has asked me to do, that that fortified me, that gave me strength, mm-hmm. that gave me courage to step out and lead in ways that I thought if Paul can say that my yeah. life is worth nothing, but it, it doesn't matter, because I'm gonna do what God asked me to do, that gave me the courage to do what I felt like he was asking me to do. So, love that verse. I think it actually
2: is exactly what we're talking about today because when I read part of your book, I remembered that when I was a teenager, our pastor's wife didn't fit the traditional mold. She didn't play the piano and she didn't <laughs> want to lead the Monday mor- you know evening women's auxiliary meeting and a lot of women in our church looked down on her and she and i were really good buddies and i said listen morag god has something just for you and it was not long after that she discovered she has a heart for going out at 11 12 at night taking coffee and sandwiches to the prostitutes on the streets
1: i love that because you know, one of the sad things I think about pastor's wives, there's no one model anymore. There's not, you know, well, this is what it means to be a pastor's wife. It's the model is all over the place, but there aren't that many who have actually used their position to, um, to lead out into the world. It's, Like your pastor's wife, she was taking what God had done for Mm -hmm. her and took it outside of the church walls. And so I love that model of advocacy and using your influence for for good and for God's kingdom in the world. And
2: that's really honestly what you've done with this book, Kay. It's one, I mean, I'm an avid reader. That's kind of one of my hobbies. It's one of the most gloriously transparent Mm. books that I've ever read. And I thought, what a gift Mm. to young pastor's wives to be able to say, here's what's true. But give us a little bit, because you, I mean, you grew up a church kid. I mean, oh, as yeah. church I'm as a, a kid could girl. be. Yeah,
1: I am a church girl. <laughs> um, I, I have the the nursery role certificate, you know, that I got at one week old to prove that I, I've been in church my whole life. Yeah, my dad was a pastor of small Baptist churches in, uh, in California, and um, so I grew up in a ministry home, and then I married a man who was headed toward ministry, and we've been in ministry 42 years. Wow. And so it's really, I don't even know what normal life is like I only know a ministry home my dad's and then in my husband's so um, I am thoroughly and completely a, a church girl <laughs> it's my life
2: <laughs> you you tell a very interesting story about how you and Rick met um, and I loved the honesty of you've had to fight for this marriage yes how, how did you I mean you weren't immediately thinking this is the man of my dreams
1: no I actually was in love with someone else and um, I didn't know, it's, it's a bit of a long story, but the gist of it is within eight days of our first date, he asked me to marry him. And I, we were sitting in, in the dark, we'd gone to this revival where I was playing the piano, he had come with me. And so you played the piano, oh, you already yeah, were I halfway well, there. I, the pastor's kid, you know, I, I I had no choice. I was made to play the piano. Um, so I had played the piano with this church revival, little church revival while we were in college and Rick had, he we'd gone on one date and he came with me to this one and and then we're sitting there praying at the end of this date as all good you know christian couples should no (laughs) making out we were praying and um so he um in the dark he just said will you marry me wow and i said what did you say and he said uh and then he kind of got a little like what what have i just done and he said um i love you would you marry me and i had this moment there's only been two times really that god that i would say he spoke to me Mm -hmm. and that was the first and i i'm coming to god saying i don't love him i actually really am so crazy about his friend who just broke up with me i he's a nice guy he's amazing but i'm not interested in what am i supposed to do and i felt like god said to me say yes and i'll bring the feelings and so I said yes wow. to somebody that I barely knew had been out, you know, on one date and at 19 that was the way I understood God worked and so I said, yeah, so all our marriage problems I blame on God because <laughs> I think that's <laughs> only fair really I, yeah, too. Yeah. It's his I, idea. I was not looking for this. This is what God said to do. So um yeah, so we got engaged. We didn't tell anybody because, you know, even in our little Christian college where it was good to be led by the Spirit, I could tell that wasn't <laughs> gonna go over well. So we kept it a secret. We broke up a couple times because I always thought there'd be the bells and the whistles and the, you know, the churning in your stomach of, oh, this is my man. And I was just like, he's a nice guy. But really, am I going to spend my whole life together? And so we broke up, got back together. And um, so when we got married, we were strangers. We really didn't know each other. We hadn't done any of the work that you're supposed to do of getting to know each other, working out potential areas of comfort, nothing. We just jumped in um, because that's what God told us to do, as we thought. So we've, we have had to fight for a strong relationship. It, it's not been easy. What made you keep fighting? Why didn't you just say at some point, you know what, this is not working? Um, you know, because we always told our kids that we would not get a divorce. Yeah. We told our, our kids that we would always work it out that we, no matter what happened, dad and I loved each other, we were gonna work it out, we would work it through, and they didn't need to worry about it. And so honestly, the two things were, I had made a commitment to God, I truly felt like that that commitment we made um, to each other when we got married was before God, and was sacred, and then I couldn't imagine sitting down with my children face to face and saying to them, you know all those things I told you? Yeah. You know how I told you that with God's help we would be able to work it out? You know those promises I made to you? Mm-hmm. Guess what, we can't keep them. I c- I couldn't do it. Yeah. And so the times when, um, and we're so different, Rick and I, we, <laughs> the Mars and Venus thing, just, I mean, we're galaxies apart, we're, we're light years apart. It's not just planets away. We are so <laughs> different in every single thing. We're committed to God, committed to each other. Beyond that, we are not alike. And um, so all the opportunities to work through difficult times, it was, it was that commitment to God and that, not ever feeling like I could ever sit down with my kids and say, we, we didn't, we couldn't do it. I
2: wanted to talk about some of, what do you think are some of the greatest pressures on young pastor's wives? Because sometimes, you know, you get married and then you discover your husband has a calling. And so you've almost got, roped into a life that you didn't necessarily sign up for.
1: <laughs> Sometimes that is true. For me, I did know. Uh, Rick was heading to the ministry, so I did have that. But when I talked to um, you know, some of our young staff wives and I asked how many of them knew that you know, when they married their husband that this is where they were gonna end up, and very few of them do, I think they're afraid of being um, caught in the expectations of other people. Wow. I hear that around the globe. No matter what country I visit, no matter where I visit in the United States, pastors' wives tell the same story of what, how do you live with the expectations of being perfect? They, they feel like they've got to be perfect or they've got to measure up, they've got to be, um, dress a certain way, talk a certain way, that they have to know the Bible, you know, like Beth Moore. They've got to be able to <laughs> recite it in all the original languages. And, um, and when they don't know how to do that and they receive no preparation, they feel very inadequate yeah. and, and feel, And I think I've also discovered um, both from my own growing up and talking to a lot of other pastor's wives is there's this sense of there's this almost this game that's played. The parishioners think the pastor and his family are perfect. And so the pastor and his family, it feels good in a little bit to have people think you're that great. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's be honest. It strokes the ego to have people think you've got it all together. So without meaning to, they perpetuate that. Fallacy that mm-hmm. that um, that lie, yeah. and so then the pastor and his family are under the pressure to act perfect, so they try to act perfect, and the church over here thinks, oh, they never have problems like we do, Mabel. They don't fight. They don't wake up and think, you know, what have I done? Or their kids are always well behaved, and so then there's this this distance and there's yeah. there's no intimacy. First John one nine says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we'll have fellowship with each other. Mm-hmm. God's intent is that the pastor and his family and the and the people in the have this rich fellowship. It can only happen when the pastor and his family say, we're getting off the pedestal, we can't walk on water, we can't live on this teetering little pedestal, and we can't exist in this pretend box of perfectionism. When the pastor and his family stop doing that, then the congregation has to adjust their own expectations. So I always tell young pastor's wives, get off the pedestal, get out of the box, stop trying to walk on water. I remember when I was in seminary in
2: London, I wasn't in a pastoral track, but some of my friends um, were and they were basically told, don't make friends with anybody in the church because you're not supposed to. And I think it's led to so many lonely people in the pulpit what how do you what do you say to that?
1: Yeah, I saw that lived out in my parents' home. Mm-hmm. The generation that they they heard that in seminary, they were told that in Bible college, and they were very warm and caring people, but they kept this little bit of reserve yeah. around themselves of They didn't want to make anybody in the church unhappy if they had friends. So they looked for their friends, maybe in former churches, but not in the current church. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a teenager looking at my parents, looking at my friend's parents who were going out on Friday nights, who had people over and looking at my parents who didn't have that and deciding if I go into ministry, I'm not going to live that way. I need friends. Mm -hmm. I need people. And I believe that God, I think that that's the antidote to that walk on water syndrome is to know, and to be known, and to build relationships. You don't have to know everybody in the church on an intimate basis. That's probably not a good thing to do. But you just need a few people Mm -hmm. that you can really be yourself, really share your soul, share your struggles. And it is in that knowing and being known that I think that we have um, what it takes sometimes to make it through the harder times, Um, to be able to share where you're struggling, to share where you're hurting, to share where you need Jesus, like everybody else does how do you handle
2: criticism like I I think it has to be really hard I mean you can people write and tell me criticize me and I'm cool with that but if they criticize my husband or my son it's like a part of me comes out that's definitely not been saved yet (laughs) because I just want to punch their lights (laughs) out but I think if you're a pastor's wife that's
1: got to be so much more difficult it is difficult and people say cruel things Mm. Um, I wish you know giving Christians the benefit of the doubt that they were going to at least, you know, act mature if they're unhappy about something. Uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Some of the meanest cusses in the world are people in our churches. Wow. And um, they they maybe their body's been saved, but their their emotions and their mouths haven't. And um, so terrible things have been said. Terrible things have been done to 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 people in the ministry, and it's almost, and it can sometimes tear a church apart, very much the way that a divorce can tear a family apart. When a pastor and his family are experiencing criticism and wounds, it's, it's like the church itself is, um, there's a divorce, and it is so painful. The only, you know, bottom line, there's only two options, and one of them is to run your race for Jesus, because you can't please everybody, it's not my job, to please everybody in the church. It is my job to please Jesus. Yeah. So if I run my race for him and I practice radical forgiveness, I don't know what else. There's no other magic pill, no other magic formula. Criticism will come. Some of the terrible things have been said to us even in even when our son died. People said there were so many wonderful things there were cruel things that were said to us about Matthew and, and, and the way that he died. And um, nothing's more personal to me than that. And part of me wants to just camp on that and be really bitter and angry. Mm-hmm. And I know for the good of my soul, I have to keep my eyes on Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I have to forgive yeah. and not let that bitterness become a part of who I am and taint everything about me.
2: Radical forgiveness is, is a very intentional act. I love the way how you, because you, you've geared this book to pastor's wives, but honestly, Kay, this is a book for everybody yeah. because we're all going to face criticism. We're all going to face disappointment. We're all going to face times when people are looking at our kids and judging our kids. And I think that, that that absolute commitment to radical forgiveness is to me God's gift to us to live in a world where things are so broken. Well,
1: the world doesn't know what to do with that. The world doesn't know what to do with the kind of forgiveness that truly lets people off the hook, that that lets people not live with rubbing their nose over and over and over into what they've done or said that was wrong or that was hurtful to us. Um, and yet the Bible is also so clear when it tells us that the world, you know what Jesus said, the world will know your mind when you have love for each other. And so when we forgive, it actually is such a testimony to the world of the power of of Jesus and his grace and his mercy in our lives. And um, we have the opportunity through the pains and the heartaches and the sorrows of our lives, the misunderstandings, the yeah. disappointments, that when people hurt us yeah. to practice that same kind of forgiveness that he's given to us.
2: I remember telling my son when he was little and somebody had really hurt him because he wanted life to be fair. And I was like, babe, fair doesn't live here, but Jesus does. <laughs> That's you know? good.
1: Can I put that in my next book because I really <laughs> like that line? <laughs> but it's, there's a truth to that.
2: It's there like, is. And to me, it's not like God wants to make you for forgives as right. you're a good christian woman right. to me it's a gift to us to live in a world that doesn't that is not fair that does yes you know?
1: Oh, well, I was born with the world "why" imprinted upon my forehead because I want to know why it's not fair. I'm always looking on that search for fairness, and you're so right; it's it's not there. Yeah, um, and that's a that's a pointless <laughs> search. Yeah, I like your answer much better.
2: Just, I want to ask you just how did you protect your kids as you grew up from allowing them to be themselves and make mistakes and not think, well, I'm the pastor's son or daughter, so I better yeah. get it all right.
1: I tried to have I tried to have an alliance with Sunday school teachers and youth workers Um, I mean you can so much of everything is how you approach it and I could have gone in with a chip on my shoulder and said now look you need to treat my kids right you need to treat them like you would treat anybody I mean I could go in with that kind of defensive stance and put people off I chose to go in with a much softer stance to kind of go in and enlist them as an ally if you will to my kids to be able to say you know what I want you to treat my kids just like all the other kids so if they're if they're messing up and they're causing trouble please let me know don't you don't have to protect me from that but on the other hand you know they they do kind of live with a lot of scrutiny so maybe let them pass a little, like you would the next kid, and try to get them as, as to be an ally rather than an adversary. And um, but if but if there were lines that were crossed, and there were people that said things to my kids that weren't kind, that were you know um, put them in those boxes of expectation, I did try to have conversations. Uh, I sheathed the cloth, sheathed the, the, the grizzly bear cloths that you were talking about. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but but I did confront yeah. it directly and yeah. honestly. And I always told my kid, kids, we don't do what we do because daddy's the pastor. We do what we do because this is what we think Christ asks for everybody who's yeah. a believer and a follower.
2: And that's why I really believe this book is really for all of us. And I'm going to tell you in a few minutes um, how you can get hold of sacred privilege. One of the things I love so much about Kay is that she has eyes to see beyond her own four walls. And the walls of our nation to those who are hurting in the world. And we've become so aware recently of a desperate famine in South Sudan, and so I want to, to show you how you and I can actually make a profound difference there right now. So please, would you watch this?
3: I mean, they have just flocked here, and the need here is incredibly great.
4: At the moment, the famine in South Sudan is contained to the northern region, but the UN Food and Agricultural Organization has predicted that over a million families uprooted because of civil conflict are at risk of starvation.
3: So these are returnees who have returned back to their home area. The problem is they came here with nothing. They didn't have cattle, they didn't have goods, they didn't have money. They lost all that in the war and now they've got to try and reestablish, but it takes six months at least to get a crop to give them the food they need. What do they do in the
4: meantime? People who have fled to areas near rivers are eating water lilies. Mothers like Awak must rely on leaves from trees to give to their young children, like Mayaku. The Aluthlang family are among the fortunate ones, because they have located trees yielding fruit, like this. But as soon as these sources are exhausted, there will be nowhere else to turn for something to eat for thousands of families. As with any disaster, it's the young ones who are the most vulnerable. The UN's Children Organization has discovered more than 250,000 children who are severely malnourished. And if they do not receive nourishing food immediately, thousands of them will die.
3: There's a desperate need here for months to come, and we've got to try and do something to help them. I mean, they are totally desperate. There are families here with malnourished children. We have to make a difference.
2: I'll never forget what it was like um, my first time walking into one of those malnutrition clinics and seeing um, babies that could literally hardly take a breath. Every single breath cost them um, energy that they didn't have. Their skin literally peeling off their arms and their legs. Their hair turned um, orange-ish red because there's no protein in their system. And once you see something like that, you can't... You can't forget about that. You become responsible. And to sit in some of these clinics and pray with some of these moms. And somebody said the most bizarre thing to me when I got back. She said, don't you think that in countries like that where there is desperate poverty and desperate malnutrition, don't you think these mothers almost get used to it? There's not a mother on the planet who would ever get used to having to bury their child or having to hold their child as they take their last breath simply because they cannot give their children any food. The situation at the moment is really desperate, but the amazing thing is we can do something. We have come up with this fantastic cereal. I, you know, I took some of it myself before I fed it to the children. It looked like oatmeal, but it's full of vitamins and minerals. And one of the doctors that we were working with said, Sheila, literally from the first bowl of this, it reverses the cycle from death to life. So many people are counting on us. And I often think how ridiculous that I, I mean when I think of the number of diets I've been on in my life, and then I think of these mothers who are desperately scraping the dirt to try and get some food for their children. We can do something. I've been there. I've seen with my own eyes the difference it makes. I've prayed with these moms. And here's what we want to do. At the moment, we have a program in place where we're feeding 400,000 children. And with your help, we need to continue doing that. We never want the lines to be longer than the food we have. So when I left there last time, I promised these people, listen, I promise you, we will keep help coming. So for $30, you can feed three children for three months. I mean, that's like going, that's like two movie tickets and there's nothing decent out there. $50 feeds five, $100 will feed 10 children for three months. There's such a crisis and you and I have been given so much. And maybe you think, well, I don't have a lot. Jesus only ever asks, what do you have? That's what he said when they looked at this huge crowd that needed to be fed on the mountain. Jesus didn't say, okay, feed everybody. He said to them, what do you have? If we all bring what we have, Jesus will bless it and break it and he'll feed his people. But we need your help now. Would you go to your phone? Would you dial the number on your screen? Would you go online to lifetoday.org? And let's be an answer to the prayers of these mothers and fathers and these desperate children. Who knows the young men and women that God wants to raise up in these nations to change these nations for Jesus. So let's do it. Would you help us? Would you help us now?
0: Thank you. In impoverished and even now famine-stricken areas of Africa, children are suffering. The need is great and without food, they face death by starvation. Life's Mission Feeding program is ready. With your support, we're able to feed and care for children in famine areas of Sudan as well as Angola and Mozambique. With all of our previous reserves gone and Mission Feeding facing the worst drought and food shortage in years, we urgently need to replenish our food supplies to reach 400,000 children counting on us. Your life-saving gift of $30, $50, or $100 will help feed and care for three, five, or ten children for the next three months. Please also consider a special gift of $1,400 to help sponsor a school and help feed 140 children for three full months. With your gift of any amount, we'll send you My Daily Word Devotional. This box set of four seasonal devotionals will help you read, reflect, and renew yourself through God's Word, with space to journal your thoughts and reflect each day. With your gift of $100 or more, you'll also receive Carrie Job's newest music project, The Garden, along with the Story Behind the Garden companion DVD. And finally, with your gift of $1,000 or more, be sure to request Determined Eagle, our 2017 commemorative bronze sculpture. Please call, write, or go online today and make your gift of life to help feed and care for hungry children.
2: Can you hear them coughing? Can you hear that deep chest cough? Because the resistance is so low that the least little thing becomes a serious life or death issue for these children. And I don't know if you realize every time um, that you pick up the phone and you call or every time you go online, these are the people whose lives That you're changing and our prayer is that we can save this little one but my prayer is that we can save hundreds of other children before they get to the stage no child should ever get to the stage no mom should ever have to watch this so if we do something now we can stop this from happening Thank you so much. If the phones are busy, persist. Kay, thank you so much for being with us. Um, You've got uh, like so much wisdom to share and for any gift that people send in, we're gonna send Kay's book, Sacred Privilege, your life in ministry as a pastor's wife or as a woman. Trust me, there's something in there for every single one of us. Thank you for your vulnerability.
1: Thank you, Sheila. Thank you for the opportunity. Can we just stay all day? I mean, yeah, I just sure. To, yeah, just so hang much out with people. Okay, yeah, let's yeah. Do it.
2: I'm awesome. going to ask, see if Kate can stay on with us and we can maybe do another show another time. But for now, I'm Sheila Walsh saying thanks for being with us. On Wednesday's in the Word.
1: thought, if I can love my children like that, how much does God love His children?
0: Living Amazed with God's Love. Life Today is made possible by the supporters of Life Outreach International. Your gift will be used exclusively for the exempt purposes of life. The ministry features specific outreaches as examples of the programs it supports and conducts. Gifts are considered to be without restriction as to use unless explicitly stipulated by the donor. The ministry is a member of the ECFA.